My message today is entitled, Touching Jesus, and I want you to put on your imagination thinking for just a little bit to begin with today. I want you to imagine what it would be like to spend a day with Jesus, a 24-hour day. Wow, what would that be like? Imagine, what would you do? What would you ask of Jesus? Um, is there something particularly you'd like to learn uh, from him? How would it feel to be with Jesus moment by moment for 24 hours? A day in the life of Jesus, a day in the life of his ministry. Would you uh, like to see something special? Maybe, maybe him heal somebody. Would you like to hear him teach? How about hearing for the first time one of his parables in its fullness and completeness, maybe as he pointed something out. Maybe you'd like to sit down with his disciples as he taught them and get to know some of them a little bit. Maybe uh, you'd like to just watch his facial expressions or hear his pleasant words as he talks with another or prays with another or his, or his winsome ways as well. Would you like to pray with Jesus? Would you like to be prayed for by Jesus, as we know he did for his disciples. Imagine, imagine what it would be like to spend a day with Jesus. Or just like that song says, that popular song, we can only imagine. But today, I'm going to ask you to do a little bit of that because we are limited. However, the scripture does help us a bit. And today, we're going to look at, in part, a day in the life of Jesus. And there's so much packed there. We're only even going to do a part of the day, and I'm going to have to set some of the backstory there. So put on your imagineering thoughts there. And as we go through the scripture stories today, I hope that you'll begin to identify, that you'll see what Jesus was like so that he can be a part of your everyday today and forevermore as well. But before we go any farther, I'd encourage you to pray with me, please. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful, first of all, to spend time with you, to spend time with Jesus, to invite the Holy Spirit into our life and thereby the very presence of God. And Lord, we are grateful to be able to spend our time together as well. And so, Lord, today as we open up your word, help us to understand it well. Help us to see you in a different light in new ways, Lord, that will cause our hearts to love you more. And Lord, as we see you and as we begin to grasp what you have for us, May we take hold firmly with faith, for we ask this in the worthy name of Jesus. Amen. Now, I need to start with a little bit of a backstory. In other words, what had immediately preceded these 24 hours? Jesus was up north in Galilee. He actually had been teaching and uh, healing by the Sea of Galilee, and he had been so busy teaching and healing he hardly had time to eat. He didn't have any time to rest. By the end of the day, he was exhausted, we're told. And in the midst of his exhaustion, he decided to do something that maybe we could learn a little bit from too. Sometimes you just need to rest. And so he bid his disciples to get in a boat, and he would get in with them, and they were going to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. You see, now, he was on the... Um, uh, the, uh, let's see, the uh, western side, and on the eastern side, that was the Gentile area. 
that was the place where the Jewish folks wouldn't be bothering so much the folks that he had been ministering to him. So he decided to get into the boat, and apparently he promptly fell asleep. Now, you know the rest of the story, and I'm not going to really go there too much, but there was a great storm that came up. And it's kind of interesting how that all worked, because you see the Sea of Galilee is about 600 feet below sea level. And we think that's really, really low. We think Mojave Desert is low. Well, this is the lowest freshwater lake on Earth there at the Sea of Galilee. And right at the northern end of the Sea of Galilee is like a crack. It goes right down by a mountain, the mountains of Arbel there. And the wind would, in a very short time sometimes, just come, come down that valley. And actually what would happen is the hot air from from the, the uh, plateau area would come rushing down that valley. And um, we, we know that uh, uh, hot air falls. And, and they would mix together and you'd have a tornadic wind. And you could be perfectly calm and then all of a sudden you have a terrible storm. And so we have that story and you remember Jesus said, peace be still. And then in the morning, he gets to the other side of the lake. Now, on the other side of that lake, on the eastern side, that was the Gentile area. In fact, we don't have a single city on the eastern side mentioned in the New Testament. Um, they're called under an eclectic name, Decapolis. There are actually 10 cities there on the side of the lake or just inland a little bit from the lake the 10 Gentile cities of Decapolis. In fact, you can go visit the ruins of, of them today. And so Jesus decides to go there to get a little rest. Now, unfortunately, as was common in Jesus' life, was he didn't get a lot of rest. And the folks who had been listening to him there on the other side, the Jewish side, some of them decided to get into boats and go with them. So they also had been caught up in that storm and had seen what had happened and had heard his words and watched the, the waves suddenly go silent and the wind stop. They had experienced all that. And as Jesus and his disciples get out on the shore, suddenly coming rushing down from the caves there that are really just within a, a stone's throw of the seashore, come two demoniacs. Now, again, I'm not going to tell you that whole story either. I'd love to spend some time with that. You remember the story of the two demoniacs and the pigs and all? And so well, whenever I go to Israel, I love to take people to that spot. It's one of the authentic spots that you can go to. There's only one spot in the whole Sea of Galilee it could have been. And you can go right there. And so as, as Jesus puts his feet on shore, these demoniacs come rushing to him. And, of course, the disciples, they skedaddle. They're out of there. They flee. But the same Jesus who had just spoken with authority to the winds and the waves was not afraid of demons called legion inhabiting these demoniacs. And so as that story continues that uh, he freed these two desperate men, the, uh, they had been living in the caves. You can go see those caves today. I have been living in those caves there. The whole countryside was afraid of them. And they wanted to go back with Jesus after he had cast the demons into the pigs and the pigs had all drowned and all. And, and the countrymen asked him to leave. And Jesus said, all right, all right, I'll, I'll go. 
And he had a reason for that. But now, the demoniacs wanted to go with him. But no, Jesus wanted to set them up as the first missionaries to Decapolis. And by the way, just a little hint, they were very successful missionaries. There was going to come a time in Jesus' ministry where Jesus would no longer be welcomed into Galilee. In fact, his ministry after the multiplication of the loaves and fish stopped because he wasn't the type of king that they wanted. He was a different type of king. And so his ministry stopped and Jesus actually went over to Decapolis. And you may remember just a few weeks later, Jesus multiplied loaves and fish for the Gentile believers as well. In fact, he spent many days there in Decapolis. Well, that's kind of the backstory. And we're going to begin in Mark again today, in chapter 4 today. And Jesus leaves this uh, side of Galilee, goes back to where he'd started from just a day earlier. It's only about eight miles across the, the Sea of Galilee. It's really not a sea, it's just a lake, and it's not even a really big lake. And so as he travels across, he lands upon the shore, and there once again he begins to teach and heal. Only this time, he's there just outside of Capernaum. Capernaum, one of Jesus' favorite places to minister. Kafir-Nehum is actually how they dispelled it. Kafir is the Hebrew word for village. Nehum harkens back to remember, remember the prophet Nehum, or we call him Nahum, one of the minor prophets, and he's minor because he, he wrote shorter uh, scriptures than some of the longer prophets like Isaiah and Jer Jeremiah. But the village of Nahum, Capernaum or Capernaum as we would say. And there he teaches on the shore for a moment and he's headed up to a feast because there's somebody who has invited him to a special feast. It was one of his disciples, Levi Matthew. Now, you'll remember Levi Matthew was a a tax collector. And just like today, people don't like tax collectors. And so that's kind of unusual right there. Now, uh, Levi Matthew was probably pretty wealthy. Remember, they not only taxed, got, uh, collected taxes for the Romans, but they also enriched themselves as well. There was a good deal of graft. And Capernaum just so happened to be right in the center of the major crossroad that connected the two major highways of the ancient world. The Via Maris that runs along the Mediterranean and the King's Highway that runs along the Jordan Rift Valley. They both end up in Egypt. The King's Highway goes all the way through Mesopotamia there and uh, uh, that uh, uh, curve there. And there's a road that connects both of those uh, highways. And right along that, is where Capernaum is. What a great place to collect taxes where people come along, you know, doing their business and their commerce and so on. So I have an idea that Levi Matthew was probably a pretty rich guy. And so Jesus goes to Levi Matthew's home. And as he's there, our story begins in Mark chapter 5. And I'm going to start with verse 21. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love to have you follow along. I always believe it's uh, more impactful when we read our Bibles ourselves and see the words ourselves. And reading from Mark chapter, chapter 5, starting at 
starting with verse 21, going to read through 24 at, at this time, Mark 5, 21 through 24. It says, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and besought him, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well. And he went with him. Now let's stop for a moment and digest what has happened. As Jesus is teaching about uh, there on the sea, as the other folks got off the boat, do you think they had a story to tell? Oh my, yes. Imagine them telling the story of the calming of the sea. Imagine them telling the story of the two demoniacs who had been miraculously delivered, hearing the very words of the demons themselves, this legion, watching the pigs all go swimming and drowning, and then seeing Jesus self-possessed meets the whole crowd there. Oh, can you imagine the retelling of those stories? Doesn't everybody like a good story, especially a miraculous story like that, or several stories? And so I'm sure the ones who weren't able to get into the boat, boats are now hearing these stories, and Jesus again is beginning to teach and to heal. And then we have Jairus, who is the ruler of the synagogue. Now, imagine for a moment, uh, this is not a rabbi, this is not a teacher. Uh, it's something kind of like a head elder we would think of today, the ruler, the one who's kind of in charge of the goings-on there in the local synagogue. And, and by the way, you can go to the ruins of that synagogue today in Capernaum there, and you can kind of uh, imagine maybe what he was doing or where. But he comes to Jesus, and he says something that is absolutely amazing. In fact, he says a couple of things here. He says, my daughter is dying. Have any of you ever been with somebody who's dying? Have you? I have. Wow. It's literally an eternal moment. It's a time uh, of prayer, sometimes grief. It is a time of longing. It's a time of hope. There's so much of a cacophony of emotions that take us. And then add to that, it's his daughter. Now, I don't know about you. You can go after me. You go after my kids? Oh, that's a whole other thing. And to have a, a, a child of ours on the point of death, and he comes to Jesus and said, Jesus, please lay hands upon my daughter and she'll be made well. Now that right there is an amazing statement of faith by the ruler of the synagogue. Yeah, I heard an amen. I could hear a couple, I hope. And as he says this, he's also making an incredible request of Jesus as well. Because he said, she's dying. And you see, to be dying, to have the pallor of death, to have the sickness of death upon you, and to be with someone who is dying makes you immediately unclean. And this is a society that very much valued the difference between clean and unclean. Now let me explain that for just a moment because it's going to come in uh, in just a moment a little farther. You see, to be unclean means to not, to, to not be pure, to not be separated, 
to not be set aside, to um, not be Kaddish, holy, set apart. It's literally always associated in the Jewish mind with hope. And so when you see the word unclean in the New Testament, think of hope. And when you see the word unclean, think of the word hopelessness. And so a person who is unclean is thought of and thinks of themselves as hopeless in one way. And so he's asking Jesus to come touch this person who's dying to become ceremonially unclean himself, but he has the faith enough in Jesus to do it and to express his faith publicly. Well, what an incredible picture there. But the story doesn't stop there. We read it this morning in our uh, earlier quotation. And let me read it again, starting with verse 25. And there was a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years. She had suffered much under many physicians, spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather she grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. By the way, uh, Matthew and Luke also record this story. And they said they touched the fringe of his garment. Some of your Bibles will, you, will translate the word hem. We'll talk about that word in a minute. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I shall be made well. And immediately the hemorrhage ceased and she felt in her body that she was healed of the disease. Now, I want you to catch again what is happening here. The scripture is very specific and it's easy to miss what is happening here. There's a lot of people following Jesus. They had already heard him teach. They, uh, this incredible request from Jairus. Um, by the way, Jairus' very na name means one who will be enlightened. Isn't that great? He's going to be enlightened, all right. One who will be enlightened by God. And so here they'd heard Jairus' request and they're going with them. I imagine Jairus is also going with Jesus there. All the disciples going. The, the feast has been interrupted at Levi Matthew's house. And this poor woman comes. And it says, for 12 years, she had had this hemorrhage. Wow. Can you imagine? I imagine she was probably anemic. She was probably debilitated. Uh, I'm sure that she had suffered much. It said, scripture says she had suffered much by many physicians. Some of you maybe have been there too. I love our physicians, but they're not always right, not always able to help, are they? That's why they call it practicing medicine. And so she'd suffered much by them. Um, it said she had spent all her money and she was no better. In fact, she was worse. Wow. And then verse 27 says something. Please don't miss what 27 says. She had heard the report. Now, what's that telling you? She had heard the report. What do you think she had heard? Maybe about Jesus' healing touch. Maybe about how Jesus received sinners. Maybe how Jesus received the unclean. Because you will remember 
that she also is considered unclean. She is hemorrhaging blood. This is a lady who was probably well known. Capernaum was not that big of a town, maybe 500 people. And she was required, just like a leper, to announce her presence anywhere she went. Unclean, unclean, unclean. Everybody knew this lady. She was separated from her family. Hmm. Anybody heard anything about social distancing these days? I bet it was more than six feet, too. In fact, she had to, she was literally considered to be an outcast of society, just like a leper was. Imagine being an outcast from your family. She was put in, we'd call it today, quarantine. And yet this lady had heard a report. Somebody had been witnessing to her. Aren't you glad for that? The faithful words of somebody simply telling a story, what they have seen, can make a difference in another person's life. Thank you. And so, yes, as God had been speaking to her, her heart grabs hold by faith of a hope, even though she's supposed to be hopeless. And she presses through the crowd and says, if I can only touch just the, the hem of his garment, as some people uh, or some of your Bibles say. Well, I want to say a little more here because that's not the word that is used in Scripture. Some of the, the Bible words use the word fringe, which is closer. The Hebrew word or the New Testament word that's used is the word for titzit. It's literally the string. And so I want to take you now to an important passage that will help you understand what this is all about. And it's found in the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 15. And I want you to see what this means and what it represents because it's incredibly important to you and I today. Numbers chapter 15, and we'll start with verse 38. Notice this was a command from the Lord. Here we go. One page over, sorry about that. And the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and bid them to make tassels, some Bibles, again, fringe, on the corners of their garment throughout their generations and put upon the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. And it shall be a tassel to look upon and a remembrance of all the commandments of the Lord to do them and to, fo- and to not follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to go after wantonly. So you shall remember to do all my commandments and be holy unto the Lord. Now, I want you to know how this happened. First of all, we take for granted the color blue. Some of you are wearing blue right now. But the color blue in the times of Jesus and before was extremely rare. In fact, today uh, we can use uh, uh, cobalt blues and, and different ways to make dyes to get the color blue. In Bible times, they didn't have that. They did have one way, however, that was extremely expensive. And notice God had now commanded every single Jewish person is to have one of these. They were to have a thread, a little cord in the fringe on the titsit of their garment. You see, there along the Mediterranean coast of Israel, there is a 
a murex shell. Um, it's about so big. And the murex shell has a tiny little gland inside. And by the way, it's an unclean thing as well. And inside this little gland is a tiny little uh, spot of a gland where if they would gather about 12,000 of those together, they might be able to get an ounce of this stuff that would turn blue. But by the way, you had to even by faith do that because for it to turn blue, you had to put your cloth or your string in there and then take it out into the ultraviolet light. And only as it's exposed to the sunlight, only as it's exposed to, to light would it turn blue. And so just to get anything made of blue was extremely expensive. Interestingly enough, in Jerusalem today, you can go to an archaeological textile museum and see garments and, and uh, 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 fringes and uh, talits and, and different clothing from tombs that the people wore thousands of years ago, yet you never see a blue cord, a blue thread. And the reason being, these were so valuable that they were literally passed down from generation to generation. When the person would pass away, they would take that thread and would go to another member of the family there. Uh, another thing you might remember is that this blue was a color of the high priest's robe, literally the most expensive garment in the history of the world. Even kings never wore blue. They wore purple, which was a combination of blue and red. And so for a high priest to wear a blue robe was incredible. And to rend that garment meant instant death for the wearer, you might remember the high priest rented his perfect garment there when Jesus stood before him. Well, why blue? Well, it's very simple. It has to do with the Ten Commandments. We just read to be remember the commandments because the scripture says that when the finger of God wrote those words upon the stone there, he sapphired it, he sapphired it, or as Ezekiel calls it, the sapphire sea. The Ten Commandments, we believe, were written on sapphire stone. The precious gem, sapphire stones, they were blue. And so this is a remembrance. I brought something with me that I wanted to show you. Now, I have to admit, after 24 years of almost every week having chapel with children and kids from kindergarten through um, 10th grade, I always brought an object lesson. And so I brought one with me today. This is a modern talit, or if you want to think of it this way, it's a prayer shawl. And on, uh, this is modern, this is not like in Jesus' day, but it does have a fringe. And there's four of them on each corner. And today, if you go to see an observant Jewish person, you won't see the whole prayer shawl unless he's actually praying or someplace like the Western Wall. And by the way, uh, it's a great place to go on Friday nights. Never call it the, uh, the Wailing Wall. Always call it a Western Wall because they're praying there. And they, they have this blue thread, and it literally sticks out from uh, what we'd consider like under the, the belt or under the, the top part of their garment. And it reminds them 
that they are special, that they are God's people, that they are commandment-keeping people. And so this lady now reaches out and touches the fringe of his garment. Now, this lady was doing something she was not supposed to be doing. She was breaking every social norm at the time. First of all, she shouldn't have been in the crowd to begin with, let alone as a woman being touching a man. Several years ago, I was on a flight to Israel on an El Al airplane, and we were boarding, and a lady was sitting in front of me, and then there was an empty seat. And there was an observant Jewish Hasidic man who was boarding the plane, and as the, uh, the airline stewardess showed him his seat, he says, oh, no, no, uh, I won't sit there. And that's where he had been ticketed. And so the steward asked why, and she said, that woman. Now, this, the woman who was sitting there heard all this, and she says, what's the matter with me? She was upset, and this conversation went on about five or ten minutes, and the more the conversation went on, the more upset she got. But you see, he was not to be near enough to be able to touch another woman unless it was his wife. And it's still observed by some very observant Jewish people today. And so she broke that social custom. And then she touches the one thing that is the symbol of his authority. You may remember that in Acts chapter 7, we find that right before Stephen is being stoned, it says they laid down their garments at the feet of Saul. They laid down their outer garment. They laid down that symbol of their authority, submitting themselves to the authority of Saul to kill Stephen. You see, the titsit, the fringe, the blue, was also the symbol of their authority as a son or daughter of God. And by the way, it is for both, by the way. Now, this is a special place, a special thing. A Jewish person might actually cover his head like this when he prays because it's a way of saying, I want to dwell with you, God. I want to sanctuary with you. I want to be so close to you. I love to go down to that Western Wall on Friday nights as the Sabbath is entering or even after the Sabbath and see observant uh, men and women as they begin to pray there, earnestly praying, singing, sometimes blowing a shofar, different ways of approaching God. Well, as they did so, it's amazing. Uh, as she touched the hem of his garment, Scripture says she was immediately healed, immediately healed. And so I go back here to, to the Word of God here and go back here to um, Mark chapter 5. And notice it says, she ceased in starting with verse 30. And Jesus perceived in himself that power had gone forth from him. And immediately he turned to the crowd and said, who touched my garment? And the disciples said to him, well, you see the crowd is brush, uh, brushing up all about you. And you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had been done to her, came in fear and in trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She told him the whole story of what she'd gone through. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. What an incredible picture. Not only 
did he heal her, but Jesus restored her social standing in front of that entire crowd, and he commented on her faith. Jesus was making a positive public example for her, of her. Now, as Jesus did that, we see that uh, he now has a job yet to do. Where had Jesus started out to go to? Where was Jesus going when this woman interrupted the, the walk? Yes, Jairus' house there. And so, uh, again, we're in the same day. A lot has happened on this day, believe me, and we don't know the half. And so Jesus is on his way once again to Jairus' house, the ruler of the synagogue. And our story uh, continues on here. And as we read it, we find that um, while he was still speaking, starting with verse 35, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But ignoring what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And, be allow and, and he allowed no one to follow him um, except James and John and the brother of James. Now we'll stop there and read the rest of it for a moment. Jesus heading on the way, your daughter is dead. Now, in Jesus' day, there was a very specific way that you had to deal with death. You see, a person had to be buried within 24 hours of their death. They had to be mourned properly, especially if it's a public official like we have this uh, ruler of the synagogue. And so immediately, they hire the mourners. They get the people for the music. They get the people the weeping. And they bring out one of these. Now, this is a special little thing. I picked it up in Jerusalem. It's what's called a tear cup or a tear bottle. Because you see what would happen is when somebody died, to show your grief, to show your care, to show that you reached out to them, instead of bringing food, instead of getting a meal train, they would literally go around to person in person and collect the tears of the village. And by the way, they had a good reason for doing this. Uh, I would refer you to Psalms 56 and verse 8. I'll turn to that real quickly and read it for you. Psalms um, 56 and verse 8. And the psalmist says, Thou hast kept count of my tossings. Thou hast put tears in a bottle, and they are not uh, and are they not in thy book? And so they would collect the tear cups. So people are already singing. People are mourning. People are weeping. People are doing all that they're supposed to do. This, this ruler's daughter, this little girl, only 12 years old, has died. They're passing the tear cup from person to person. And as they're doing this, Jesus enters this crowd. And do not. Hmm. There are two times in the New Testament we're told that Jesus wept. It's a wonder that he didn't do it a third time here. Both times was because of their unbelief at the resurrection of Lazarus and on Palm Sunday. Both times, Scripture says, he wept because of their unbelief. But Jesus says, only believe, don't fear. 
And as they began to believe, I imagine even the father and the mother had trouble believing. Maybe they're like you and me that sometimes have to pray, Oh God, help my unbelief. I'm struggling with belief. Only believe, Jesus said. He gets rid of everybody else except Peter, James, and John. Verse 40 continues. Uh, well, actually, uh, verse 20, 39. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why make a tumult and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them outside. He took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in there. And the child was where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talithi Kumai. That's uh, Aramaic, by the way. Which means, little girl, I say to you, arise or come here. And immediately the girl got up and she walked. She was, uh, she was 12 years old, and they were overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them, give her something to eat. Wow, what a great story. And as the story ends, there's a couple of things I still want you to catch here. First of all, stop the tumult. Stop weeping. In fact, Scripture tells us that when we have a spirit of heaviness, we are to put on a garment of praise. Wow! Now, there are all times we face heaviness. When our child is sick on the point of death or maybe even is dying, I think it's really cool in Scripture. Jesus never went to a funeral where there wasn't a resurrection. And so they had every reason, you would think. But Jesus says, only belief. Why are you weeping? They're laughing at him. She's dead. Rigor mortis has probably already begun to, to set in. And as Jesus is reaching out and touches this girl, please imagine what it would have been like. The first face she probably saw as she opened her eyes was the face of Jesus. Wow, wouldn't that be great? Kind of reminds me of the second coming, doesn't it? when there's going to be a whole host of saints who's the first thing they're going to see is Jesus coming in the clouds of glory. And we're going to meet him together in the Lord, in the air to meet the Lord. Wow. Maybe the first voice she hears, and she looks around, and she's her parents, and perhaps wondering what's happened. And Jesus is holding her hand. The first hand that she touches is the hand of Jesus there. What relief. What joy full of hope. You know, I can't help but reflect on the unbelief that was everywhere except in the heart of Jesus right beforehand. Literally, life was standing before them. Quite literally, Jesus had just calmed the storm of nature. He had rescued these demoniacs who were in ca captured by a legion of demons. He had been healing. He had been teaching. There were ample evidence everywhere around him. Yet they laughed at him. That's right, have mercy. Yet they laughed at him when he expressed faith. Wow.
Jesus took her by her hand. Please noticed he wasn't afraid to touch the unclean once again. She opened her eyes. She saw Jesus, and I can imagine her parents embracing her right there. By the way, did you notice another 12? If you read these chapters, you'll see 12, 12, 12, 12. 12 is a symbol in scriptures, always the number of God's people, 12 in its multiples there. Well, the last thing Jesus says there is, um, don't tell anybody. What? Don't tell anybody? You've got to be kidding. Do you think people knew about the death of this girl? Obviously. They had been passing the tear bottle around. They had been mourning. There were hired mourners. There's music. This is a small town. Why not tell anybody? It's not because Jesus doesn't know that. Jesus is not dumb. Jesus is making a point. It's a hyperbole. It's an exaggeration. Jesus doesn't want publicity for publicity's sake. Jesus doesn't uh, uh, trade in the sensational and by the way, there are a few pastors and preachers and church people who could learn from that today. Jesus himself wouldn't even do it. Don't tell anybody. Don't make this such a big deal. Praise God. Thank God. Jesus always acknowledged his faith. I have a couple of scriptures I want to read with you, a couple of quotations that are so powerful. And I hope you'll take them to heart because it confirms what we just read in Scripture. This first one is found in Desire of Ages, page 347. It says, Our confession of his faithfulness is heaven's chosen agency for revealing Christ to the world. We are to acknowledge his grace as made known through the holy men of old, talking about the Scriptures here now. But that which will be most effectual is a testimony of our own experience. We are witnesses for God as we reveal in ourselves the working of a power that is divine and individual, as, as individual as every life is distinct from all others. And our experience differing essentially from theirs. God desires that our praise shall ascend to him marked by our own individuality. Those, um, excuse me, those precious acknowledgments uh, to the praise and glory of his grace when supplied, when su uh, supported by a Christ-like life have an irresistible power that works for the salvation of souls. Isn't that a great quotation? I just love that. And so both of these people uh, expressing faith because of the report, because somebody else had a testimony to share. And then a last quotation from the book Christ of Object Lesson, because I want you to see how big or how small your faith is, it doesn't matter. Christ Object Lessons, page 206. The very first reaching out of the heart after God is known to him. Not the last, the first. Never is a prayer offered, however faltering. Never is a tear shed in secret. Never a sincere desire uh, after God cherished, 
however feeble, but the Spirit of God goes forth to meet it, even before the prayer is uttered or the yearnings of the heart are made known, grace from Christ goes forth to meet the grace that is working upon the soul. Anywhere, no matter how much or how little, if you have to pray, Lord, increase my faith, he'll do that as well. Every reaching out. And so I simply want to end by saying a question. How's your faith? How have you been reaching out to God? How have you been reaching out to the authority of Jesus today? His authority is greater than any other authority in the universe. And you can reach out and touch it. You have that opportunity. We have it every, every day. Do you believe that the authority of Jesus is the most powerful authority in the, the wilderness, in the world? Do you believe that? Then why don't we touch it more? Why don't we reach out and touch his authority? We may not have a, a tallit to touch, but we can touch it in prayer, can't we? We just read about that. Can we say, praise God, I believe what Jesus says, that I can live what Jesus says, that I can be an agent of the authority of Jesus even to others as we pray for them with his word. I want to challenge you today. I want to challenge you to reach out to touch Jesus. I want to challenge you today to um, let the authority of Christ begin to be manifested in your life in all the manifest different ways that he wants to do through and in your life. So, no matter where you are, if you're a ruler, if you're diseased, if you're a demoniac, if you're a Gentile or walked with God a long while, Jesus invites you and I to reach out and touch him today. I'm out to my prayer for you today in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for helping us to spend just a few hours, a few minutes in the life of Jesus. We are encouraged as we realize what it means to touch the authority of the Son of God. And Lord, as we do, as we reach out in faith, as we figuratively touch the hem of his garment and power goes forth, we realize that the authority of Jesus is what we need. Lord, his grace sets to naught every challenge that we face. And so now because of that, our faith can grow. We can have an experiential faith as well that will make a difference in other people's lives. And so now, dear Jesus, we pray that you'll live out your life within us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.